You're listening to Campus Review Radio. Hi, I'm Wade Zaglis, Education Editor at Campus Review. This week, the historic Christchurch Call to Action was signed by 18 countries, including Australia and five tech companies. The call is a global commitment to eliminate online hate speech, violence and terror. The US, in a gesture that has shocked the international community, agreed with the principles of the agreement but did not sign it. Today we are talking to Dr Fiona Martin from the University of Sydney. She is an expert in online media regulation. Dr Martin, the US did not sign the agreement, citing freedom of expression and freedom of the press. Is this a legitimate excuse? Is hate speech easily separated from, say, free speech? There's always going to be arguments about this point because of the diversity of political and religious views across the world. But, um, you know, Trump and the Trump government saying that they support the principles without signing up to the actual agreement, I think, is, is contradictory. It is quite clear how to define hate speech if we have a set of guidelines that can help us define that harmful speech. Um, the lawyer, Susan Benesh, who's the director of the Dangerous Speech Project at Harvard, mm-hmm. argues that you can identify when hate speech is dangerous in a number of ways. First, you have to have an influential speaker or a speaker with an influential means of dissemination, a platform like social media, for example, um, who secondly speaks to a willing or impressionable audience that has uh, fears or griefs that can be mobilised. Mm-hmm. And third, where the speaker actually delivers a call to violence. So those three things can set out fairly clearly how you define what hate speech is as opposed to free speech about, for example, dangerous issues. But Benesh also argues that there needs to be um, a consideration of the context for the speech, and that is really important to understanding whether, you know, kind of hateful or violent speech is actually really dangerous. And here I think you can see that in historical or social contexts um, where they underpin, you know, speech that's right for violence. Um, I was reading an article in The Diplomat just recently and they were talking about India where the Hindu nationalist BJP's social media unit has been inciting violence against Muslims on WhatsApp. Mm-hmm. And there are really clear examples of where they're strategically calling out to Hindus to hate Muslims, to act against Muslims. Also, you know, calling out um, uh, people to um, uh, disparage or distrust women journalists Mm -hmm. who they like to call prostitutes. So I think there are really clear examples like that where we can see social media speech and suppose it's free speech on social media actually being strategically mobilised to incite hate or violence or distrust against others. Okay. Are, you, are you concerned the agreement is a voluntary effort and is non-binding? No, I'm not at all concerned about that aspect of the Christchurch call. Um, These types of arrangements really, I think, are better starting off 
as voluntary agreements mm -hmm. because they give regulators and companies space to work on ways to cooperate. Um, I think there really needs to be at this stage of the game an open scoping of ways in which companies can operate more effectively in the public interest okay. and be more transparent and accountable. Just imposing regulation without that sort of negotiation, I think, um, mm -hmm. doesn't advance the cause of developing those public interest mm -hmm. principles or actions or ways of reporting or um, even just forums for discussion. Absolutely, might lock them into something that you know needs to change later on. Well, and this has been the argument in Germany, where Germany quite early on introduced its Network Enforcement Act, um, which you know can penalise social media companies for up to fifty million euros if they don't remove illegal speech within twenty-four hours. And what you've seen there is quite a, I suppose. Um, a quite a backlash against the constraints of that law. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there is one benefit. We've seen Facebook move to um, introduce about 8% of its moderation um, labour force to Germany. <laughs> so they are operating out of Berlin and Essen in new areas. So, you know, it has had one spin-off in that Germans get far more better moderation of Facebook than most other countries on the planet. Um, but I don't think it helps us understand any better how the social media companies are moderating content, mm -hmm. um, what sort of processes they use, how we can get them to be more responsive to us when we report you know, content that we find violent or offensive or hateful, and what we do if someone takes our content down, like how we actually get redress. Mm -hmm. And certainly um, in Europe, where the European Commission introduced a, a voluntary uh, non-binding agreement again, um, and a code of conduct on illegal hate speech, it got the social media, major social media platforms to um, the table to agree to look at ways to improve moderation. And over 18 months, they actually did improve their responses to reports about hate speech, which is, you know, great. And it actually has improved, I think, the sort of operation of those companies in response to those sort of types of speech. Um, Vera Jourova, who's the um, European uh, Commissioner for Justice, she did say that one of the things that the social media companies could be doing better is responding to their users. So when users complain that their content's Absolutely. being taken down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah the, the companies still need to work more on those sort of responses, telling people why their content's being removed, mm -hmm. you know, exactly how they've breached exactly. standards, Complete how they can seek redress, etc. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what do you see as the primary challenges for the, uh, the Christchurch call going forward? Well, the bottom line is that the platforms don't want any regulation which is going to affect their bottom line. So, you know, they are going to push back on anything that is going to cost them a lot more in moderation. 
At the same time, most Western governments aren't really keen to regulate. We've had a long period of light touch regulation, neoclassical or neoliberal economics. Indeed, yep. And so, you know, this is a kind of difficult moment for a lot of Western governments where they're having to, you know, rethink how they regulate in the public interest. So that's causing a lot of debate, for example, in the UK, where there's a number of proposals about how to regulate social media platforms at the moment. At the same time, governments need to be seen to be acting to reduce violence in um, societies that are quite polarised. So we've got those dynamics going on. And then you've got the issue of populism. So populist governments who really use these platforms to fan hate. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where one of the chief problems is. To weaponise them, really, in a way. Yeah, you've got governments that aren't interested in (laughs) supporting this sort of call and who would rather be using social media to um, get at their enemies and, you know, kind of um, make sure that historical divisions are well fanned in order for them to keep control. You would suggest or or know that that would be the case with um, the Trump administration? Yeah, look, and I think that is one of the chief reasons that we've seen Trump back away from signing this agreement Mm -hmm. because a lot of his supporters are in the ultra-conservative side of politics and really are absolute free speech supporters. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he has condemned, for example, some, some of the moves by social media companies to for example, censor um, people like uh, Alex Jones, okay. who is a hate monger and misinformation merchant of the worst kind. And yet, you know, Trump was bemoaning the fact that uh, the platforms acted to remove his content. So I think there you have a regime that is very clearly populist in the kind of right-wing sense and very clearly interested in keeping social media as a place where divisions can be fanned so in order to maintain its um you know its fan base absolutely Uh, facebook in particular has received scathing criticism over the years for being a conduit for hate speech and extremism are you confident facebook is committed to to the agreement, or do you think this is just a PR stunt? Look, I think there's a certain reluctance on the part of Silicon Valley as a whole to seeing regulation of their businesses as justifiable and necessary. Mm-hmm. They come from the leaders of these companies come from a free speech paradigm. They have grown up with the First Amendment. Mm-hmm with the idea that restrictions on speech are dangerous in themselves. And everyone will just sort each other out, you know. And, yeah, and, I mean, the argument has been for so long in the United States that good speech will triumph over bad speech and that counter-speech will act to, you know, um, somehow balance uh, 
dangerous speech. Which is Trump's argument, and you disagree with it. You think it's the pendulum swung too far the other way. You don't think it works. Well, uh, we know that it, that that doesn't work. Actually, there's a lot of evidence now to show that with the um, scale, intensity, and um, the degree of spread of messages on the internet mm-hmm. that hate speech, dangerous speech, bad speech can drown out good speech because there are organised means of ensuring that it does. And that's what we saw mm-hmm. with Christchurch. Brenda and Tarrant, and, and you might want to take his name out there, actually. I'll, yeah. I'll say no, that again. The Christchurch attackers and the man that that live-streamed his attack very deliberately liaised with other people to redistribute that stream. This was not a lone attacker. And there's more and more evidence showing that he had, for example, um, contacts with the far right in Europe. The ways in which people deliberately redistributed that live stream after um, the Christchurch attack indicate that this was very strategic. It was the weaponisation of social media, which we've seen in numbers of ways over the last five or six years. Um, So I think, you know... um, I would agree with you. It seems to me as though there's more strategy more networking with the, with the kind of malevolent, you, you know, intentions than there are for good speech. Absolutely. And there are the means now to automate this. Yeah. So it becomes a battleground. Speech becomes a battleground on social media and there's been numbers of people who've done very good research on how this plays out in various countries. I think the other issue is the, that, you know, Silicon Valley also sees regulation as a constraint on innovation, mm-hmm. and that is certainly a line that they've pushed, for example, um, with net neutrality, getting net neutrality laws uh, revoked in the States. I mean, it goes way back to Ithiel de Solapool, one of the fellows who was um, instrumental in MIT, who was a political scientist and, and uh, at MIT, who called the internet and, you know, kind of computing, personal computing, um, technologies of freedom. And he argued that they were going to overwhelm all attempts to control them. Mm-hmm. So this is this kind of um, ideal dem- democratic language that says that, you know, regulation is bad yeah. <laughs> and that and the marketplace is good. And that we will see, you know, us, we will see ourselves set free through the market. And that is going back to, you know, kind of whether Facebook or not um, it is committed or not, I think is the crux of the problem. We've seen that the market doesn't deliver that freedom. Mm-hmm. We've seen that the market instead is constraining the way that we act and constraining it through, you know, kind of all sorts of different ways, including trading our data and, you know, kind of enabling the dissemination of... everything else, yeah. Yeah, so is Facebook committed to the agreement? They have to be because governments are going to step in 
democratic governments are going to step in more and more. They are going to be faced with different jurisdictional demands in different areas. It's going to cost them a lot more. So I think if they can commit to global agreements, or at least you know transnational agreements, it's going to make it easier for them to operate in the long run. Well, it certainly looks like uh, interesting times ahead. Dr Fiona Martin, thank you for speaking with Campus Review. You're welcome. It was great to talk to you.